people tend to stick with what they know. If you've been a criminal for the majority of your life, it can be difficult to envision another way out. While it's true some former inmates do emerge from prison reformed, there are many others who are repeat offenders. This was certainly the case with David Early. For most of his life, he was incarcerated and then given second chances by parole boards who wanted to believe in the power of rehabilitation. Unfortunately, they gambled on the wrong man. After decades behind bars, Early went on to slaughter the Knight family. The Knight family massacre brings to mind the Coulter family murders, a case popularized by Truman Capote's There are important distinctions between the two cases. While the attack on the Coulter's farmhouse in 1959 resulted in the entire family being wiped out, there was one survivor in the Knight family murders a year earlier. Amidst the terror and anguish, this survivor sprang into action to ensure the murderer would be brought to justice. This case was set in the suburbs of Denver, Colorado, during the late 1950s. During this time, most of the population growth occurred on the outskirts of the city. According to urban planner Ken Schroepel, this expansion led to the most single-family homes being constructed in the history of Denver's suburbs. Former city dwellers gravitated towards suburban life in the interest of raising a family and having access to better schools. Just like today, there were various styles of homes, but the most popular were ranch houses. Ranch-style homes diverged into four categories. Minimal traditional, single-storey, split-level and raised ranch. Variations on traditional ranches afforded families more space and privacy, as split-level and raised ranches had the capacity for multiple floors. The Knight family owned a three-storey ranch in Greenwood Village, an exclusive upper-class neighbourhood. Located in Arapahoe County, just 14 miles southeast from downtown Denver, most of the area was farmland leading up to the turn of the century. Wealthy Denverites began purchasing summer homes there in the early 1900s, and over time it gradually transformed into a suburban sprawl, brimming with full-time upper-class residents. The family patriarch, Merrill A. Knight, didn't inherit his wealth. He earned it through hard work. He was born in 1910 in Winterset, Iowa, a suburb of Des Moines. Merrill was one of three boys born to Wyman D. Knight and Laura Jones Knight. Little information has been made public about Merrill's early years. After high school, he studied pre-law at the University of Iowa before enrolling in the University of Colorado's law program. While studying there, he met Bernadine Wilson of Greeley, Colorado. Bernadine was a vivacious young woman who belonged to Alpha Phi, a social sorority on campus. By all accounts, there was an instant mutual attraction, and their courtship culminated in a marriage proposal. Merrill and Bernadine wed in mid-June of 1937. Two years later, Merrill was shipped off to the Pacific and served as a naval officer during World War II. The day before Valentine's Day of 1939, Bernadine gave birth to a daughter they named Janet Elaine. Tragically, 
the couple's joy over their newborn wasn't meant to last. At just 22 days old, Janet passed away from unknown causes. In 1941, the couple welcomed a son, Kenneth, followed by the birth of their daughter, Karen, two years later. Things were looking up for the family, though it wasn't completely smooth sailing. At age six, as the war raged on, Karen was afflicted with polio. Also referred to as infantile paralysis is a dangerous virus that can result in leg paralysis in some cases. It can also be deadly if it spreads to the muscles that control a person's breathing and swallowing. While Karen made a full recovery from the illness, her mother wasn't so lucky. In 1950, 36-year-old Bernadine passed away due to complications from polio. The young family wasn't alone in their grief. According to the US Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, when polio infections peaked in the early 1950s, 15,000 people were paralysed annually. In 1952 alone, it killed more than 3,000 people, most of them children. So it came as a great relief to an ailing country when a vaccine was made available for widespread use in 1955. In 1952, Merrill remarried. His second wife, Regina May Murray, was a Nebraskan native. She was an excellent stepmother to Merrill's two children and treated them like they were her own. They all lived together in a Greenwood Village home valued at $40,000 or roughly $377,000 when adjusted for modern inflation. This may not sound lavish to us, but Merrill's reputation as a prominent attorney and civic leader in the greater Denver area meant they lived comfortably. By 1958, Merrill held the position of president of the Denver Bar Association, a distinguished title that marked the peak of his career. As it turns out, though, the very career that brought the Knight family wealth would also lead to their undoing. At some point, Merrill served as legal counsel for a man named David Francis Early. Early was a troubled young man with a long history of criminal convictions. Although he was considered highly intelligent, he failed to break the cycle of engaging in criminal behavior time and again. The Kansas native served prison terms in Oklahoma, Colorado, and Kansas for charges that included armed robbery, car theft, and escaping a U.S. Marshal. He also had a stint in the Colorado State Hospital in 1955 after law enforcement suspected mental health issues could be propelling him toward criminal behavior. Merrill had struck up a friend with his former client, perhaps out of sympathy or a sense of duty. Merrill was a strong believer in reform and thought with just a little help, Early might turn his life around. They exchanged letters any time Early was behind bars. And then with every release, Merrill sent him money and helped him find work. Early was also reportedly a distant relative, though not by blood. He was the stepson of one of Merrill's cousins, but referred to himself publicly as Merrill's nephew. Against his better judgment, Merrill had taken Early under his wing. He had been invited to the Knight residence on a few occasions. During his prison term at Colorado State Penitentiary in Cannon City, prison doctors had deemed Early a dangerous psychopath. 
It's unclear if Merrill was ever aware of this assessment or other concerns cited about Early's mental state. In April 1958, Early, then 29, was eligible for parole following a term at Leavenworth. He shared with the parole board that his plans, pending release, he would move to Denver where his uncle had promised to help him seek out employment. Believing him to be rehabilitated, the board approved his parole. Of course, Early's actual plans post-release were vastly different from what he had promised. He did intend to head towards the night residence outside Denver, but instead of finding work, he aimed to burglarise the home and rob members of the family. He knew the knights were well off, since he had already established a personal connection with them. He figured it would be an easy feat. According to an Associated Press article, after the night robbery, Early planned to maintain his life of crime. He was quoted as later saying, I was going to rob stores and if anybody got in my way, it would be too bad. On April 22, 1958, Early was released from the federal penitentiary. He headed straight to a Denver YMCA, where he took up temporary residence. For three days, he plotted and decided the 25th was the day for action. The day started much like any other for members of the Knight family. Regina and Merrill had plans to leave for Las Vegas the following day to celebrate their fifth wedding anniversary. In preparation, Regina had spent the afternoon shopping while the children were in school. At the time, Kenneth was a 17-year-old senior at Littleton High, and Karen, who was 15, was in ninth grade at Littleton Junior High. At around noon that day, Early took a taxi from the Denver YMCA to the Knight's Greenwood home. Upon discovering no one was home, he went into the backyard and managed to gain entry through an unlocked basement door. Once inside, Early started searching each room for any money or valuables he could find. Because this was the 1950s, it wasn't uncommon for married couples to either sleep in separate beds or have separate sleeping quarters if you could afford a home with extra bedrooms. The latter was the case with Regina and Merrill. His long hours as a successful attorney made a good night's sleep essential. In the back of Merrill's bedroom closet, Early located a 32 caliber pistol and a loaded 22 caliber rifle. He grabbed the rifle and stowed the pistol at the top of the basement stairs. Then he made himself comfortable, kicking up his feet while smoking one of Mr. Knight's expensive cigars and waited. Sooner or later, the family would arrive home. About two and a half hours later, Mrs. Knight returned from her shopping excursion. Early greeted her with a gun, forcing her into her first floor bedroom, demanding she search her purse for any cash. Regina nervously handed over $60. Early grabbed the cash, then bound Regina's hands and feet with nylon stockings before forcing her onto the bed. While waiting for other members of the family to return home, Early continued to search the house for money. Karen was next to arrive home. She was bound and gagged in her upstairs bedroom. Kenneth followed a short time later, and he received the same treatment before being dumped on the floor at the foot of his mother's bed. Merrill was the last to arrive home after finishing out his work day. When Early heard him pull into the driveway, he scrambled into the bedroom, forcing Regina to call out to Merrill once he got inside. At gunpoint, 
Early directed Mr. Knight to the family room, where his hands and feet were also tied. Early's search for money throughout the house resumed before he went back to Merrill demanding money. He pulled $127 out of his wallet, the equivalent of $1,200 today, and handed it over to Early, hoping this would be the end of a terrifying ordeal. But it wasn't. Not by a long shot. Early intended to keep the family members bound until nightfall so he could make an easy escape. He kept marching between rooms where they were imprisoned to make sure no one escaped. And then suddenly, the doorbell rang. On the other side of the door stood an unexpected visitor. Varian L. Ashbog was one of Merrill's clients, stopping by to run an errand. He was attending a dinner party that evening in the neighborhood, so he stopped at the night residence to drop off some paperwork for Merrill. According to an Associated Press article, when no one answered the door, Ashbog found it unlocked and pushed it open. Early came quickly strutting toward him. When asked about the whereabouts of Mr. and Miss Knight, Early made several vague excuses, but Ashbog didn't think much of it at the time. As quoted by the Associated Press, Ashbar would later remark about the encounter. He was very polite and calm. He was casually dressed and I thought he was probably someone the Knights had hired to watch their home while they're in Vegas. End quote. No red flags or spidey senses kicking in, just one rich guy visiting another who bumped into a house sitter. Ashbell handed off the paperwork to Early and proceeded to the Wilson residence for dinner. Once the coast was clear, Early returned to the family room to check on Merrill. In a moment of boldness, Merrill had unbound himself and lunged at his captor, hoping to catch Early off guard. And that was the moment things took a turn for the worse. All at once, Early snapped, pointing a gun at the 43-year-old lawyer's head. Merrill begged her attacker to spare the rest of the family, but his attacker ignored those pleas. Early fired three shots, leaving Merrill critically wounded. Recognising his crimes had now reached another level, Early decided he needed to rid himself of witnesses. First, he headed for Regina's bedroom stepping over Kenneth before firing a single bullet at Mrs. Knight's head. He stepped back over Kenneth and repeated the same assassin-style killing of Karen, who was shot in the head and chest. In a final attempt to save himself, Kenneth struggled with all his might until he was freed from his bonds. While his sister was being murdered, he raced out the front door. Early caught up to him, hastily firing a shot as the boy ran down the gravel path leading away from the house. The bullets narrowly missed him, but when the rifle jammed, Kenneth knew he was going to make it. Kenneth pounded on the door of his neighbors, Mr. and Mrs. Wilson, interrupting their dinner party. When the door swung open, he frantically shouted, Mom and Dad have been shot. Some of the Wilson's guests ran over to the house by foot. Glenn Wilson and Varian Ashbog jumped into one of their cars. They arrived at the house just as Early was backing one of the Knights' cars out of the driveway. To stop him from fleeing, the neighbors rammed their car into the back of the car Early was attempting to steal. The car door opened, and then Early attempted to flee on foot. 
but he was no match for the three men, who pinned him down and held him there until police arrived. Sheriff's Deputy Bill Pompilly from the Littleton Police Department arrived several minutes later and took Early into custody. What the press would later refer to as Early's four-hour reign of terror had finally come to a close. Both Karen and Regina were pronounced dead at the scene. Merrill was hanging on by a thread and was transported to an area hospital where he died hours later. Kenneth had displayed true heroism, but it hadn't been enough to save the rest of his family. All he could do now was make sure the man who murdered his loved ones would pay for what they had done. Because Early was captured at the scene of the crime, detectives considered this a very open and shut case. Both murder weapons were found a few feet away from the staircases, leading to the basement and upper levels. Since money was Early's primary motivation, you may be wondering how much money he managed to obtain from the knights. Detectives discovered $187 in Early's pockets, equivalent to $1,700 today. While it's impossible to place a monetary value on human life, it's also impossible to comprehend how such a small sum would warrant psychological torture and triple homicide. Regina had been killed instantly, but when Karen's body was located, her blouse had been ripped open. No report speculated about a sexual assault, so we may never know what exactly was done to her. Her bedroom was a gory sight, Blood spattered the walls around the bed. A toy dog from a simpler and safer time was found beside her, now caked with blood. It was apparent she had been made to suffer. Early was held at Afro County Jail. When Sheriff Charles Chip Foster interviewed Early, he didn't try to deny the acts he committed. He willingly signed a full confession. In fact, Early showed no remorse for his crimes. He talked openly with detectives and reporters alike, with an air of nonchalance about the homicides. In an interview that was taped by a local news outlet and later aired on a Littleton radio station, Early casually discussed the shootings. The televised confession filled the public's growing fascination with true crime, but it also publicly glorified an alleged killer. One aspect of the case was particularly puzzling to all who examined it. Why had Early turned against his sole benefactor? The Associated Press reported that detectives found a letter from Early to Merrill among the lawyer's files. The correspondence was dated a few weeks before being paroled from Leavenworth. Early wrote tonight, You've been the only friend I've ever had. When I get out of here, I'm going to go straight. Early claimed it was only when Merrill lunged at him that he shot him without thinking. A Deseret Press article stated that the killer felt no malice or grudge towards the family, just that he needed money to survive, and once he started shooting, he couldn't afford to keep any witnesses alive. It makes you wonder if Early would have gone back to Oshbog for inconveniently knocking at the door if he had been successful in fleeing. It wasn't a long wait for Early's arraignment. He entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, and his legal team swiftly moved forward with that defence. The case went to trial less than a year after the killings. It began on November 17th, 1958, before a jury of nine men and three women. Since the defence focused on Early's mental health, 
the prosecution followed suit. A total of nine psychiatrists testified on both sides. Witnesses for the defence included two doctors who had examined early while confined at Colorado State Penitentiary and Leavenworth, as well as two psychiatrists who assessed him between the homicides and the trial. According to coverage from the Associated Press, all testimony given by witnesses for the defence landed on a common diagnosis for early. He was schizophrenic with paranoid tendencies. Medical professionals described his condition as a progressive mental disorder. Several witnesses acknowledged Early knew right from wrong, but his illness made him unable to resist wrongdoing. District Attorney Barney O'Kane called five psychiatrists as witnesses for the prosecution. Among them were Drs. Hilton and Reimer, who had conducted an examination about the commission of the crime. Both testified Early was legally sane, diagnosing him as either a sociopath or constitutional psychopath. Either way, they asserted he should be held accountable for the murders. Kenneth also briefly took the stand to point out Early as the man who slayed his entire family. Without a doubt, it was a face he would never forget. On December 3, 1958, the heart-wrenching trial came to a close. It took just 25 minutes for deliberation for the jury to reach a verdict. They found David F. Early guilty on three counts of first-degree murder. Early conveyed no emotion as the verdict was being read. Maybe to him, it was just another court hearing. He had lost another prison term in a long line of incarcerations. After the trial concluded, he was escorted from the courtroom. Back in his jail cell, he asked for the prison doctor to prescribe something for his stomach ulcers. Apparently, the stress of the trial had agitated them. Weeks later, Early was sentenced to death. In 1934, capital punishment in Colorado had been commuted from hanging to the gas chamber. Though this method seemed more humane to lawmakers, it still involved a fair amount of suffering. Early made a brief statement to the press about the sentencing. He told the Associated Press, quote, I've always managed to goof up. This time, I guess I'll go to the gas chamber. End quote. Presented with an outcome of execution, Early attempted to file several appeals. One appeal, filed in early November of 1960, made it all the way to US District Judge Alfred A. Araj. Early alleged his constitutional rights were violated based on his psychiatric diagnosis. This was the same contention presented in an earlier petition to the Colorado Supreme Court. Both of these appeals were rejected on the grounds that Early had fully confessed and had not been coerced into doing so. One document filed in rejection of appeals stated, The murders were perpetrated coldly and dispassionately because the defendant believed it necessary to the success of the robbery and in order to effect his escape. In other words, if the perpetrator had the sense to cover up his offence, he was likely not mentally incapacitated enough to be considered insane. All of the legal channels had been exhausted and the sentence was upheld. During the two-year period Early spent on death row, no one wrote or visited. His own mother, who was still alive during his final years, made no attempts to contact with her son. Early had killed the only man who cared at all, 
his only advocate in a world that had given up on any possibility he could be reformed. Like many incarcerated individuals, Early leaned on religion for solace and converted to Catholicism. August 11th, 1961, marked David F. Early's date of execution. As reported by United Press International, he spent the day listening to classified records provided by Father McKernan, the prison reverend. For his final meal, Early ate half a watermelon, which was later supplemented by a few cookies. At around 8 p.m., the 32-year-old was escorted to the gas chamber. The only witnesses present were prison officials and members of the press. From his cold metal chair, Early uttered his last words. According to the Associated Press, he said, I'm sorry I did it. I hope God will forgive me. Moments later, cyanide pellets were dropped into a container of sulfuric acid that was positioned under the chair. The poison air suffocated early in a matter of minutes. His time of death was cited as 8.02 p.m. It was a little more than three years since that fateful night he decimated the Knight family, leaving Kenneth Knight an orphan. Merrill's many attempts to give early opportunities to turn his life around had been in vain. Early didn't want to change or better himself, as Merrill had hoped. Tragically, the kindness he extended to the felonous young man had been met with a lethal betrayal. Regina Merrill and Karen Knight are all buried in Denver, inside a family mausoleum at Fairmont Cemetery. Based on burial records, Kenneth Knight is still alive, but has remained out of the public eye since the trial of his family's killer. In March of 2020, Governor Jared Polis repealed the state's death penalty. This made Colorado the 22nd US state to do away with capital punishment. It's likely that if Early had committed the homicides in the present day, he would just receive a life sentence. This case begs many questions about the efficacy of our prison system. Was this a preventable crime, with some of the blame placed on leniency when granted parole? Did Early suffer from a mental affliction that was diagnosed too late in his criminal career to improve his behaviour? While these questions remain unanswered in this historic crime, we can only hope the same questions are being posed when modern-day investigations are conducted. <laughs> 